Welcome to another Truth Factor discussion. Today we will be in Acts chapter 3, and Tom Thornhill will be hosting today's study, taking the lead as we look at a serious, an interesting situation that developed in Acts chapter 3. We will see the Apostle Peter and John heal a man, and that healing prompts an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. And then as we flow into chapter 4 next week, We'll see it, the uh, the consequences on a legal level, if you would, religiously speaking, and Peter and the apostles having to give an account for what he'd done. So it's a lot of interesting information that's going to develop over the next two chapters. Paul, if you would, take a moment and let everybody know how they can participate in today's discussion. Well, if you would like to uh, contact any of us individually, take our first name, like mine, Paul, and you can email us at paul at truthfactor.com. Only substitute the name of the gentleman that you would like to uh, send that email to. But if you're watching live and you want to make comments and ask questions, you might consider uh, at youtube.com slash truthfactorlive, facebook.com slash truthfactorlive, or twitter.com slash truthfactorlive. Uh, and you can ask your questions, make your comments, and hopefully we'll be able to bring those in in as timely a manner as we can so that you can be included in our discussion for today. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. So as I mentioned a while ago, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, and Tom is going to be taking the lead for that discussion. So, Tom, um, before I pass it off to you, Paul, we need to remind them one more thing, and I'll throw this out there. If you're watching through YouTube, don't forget to subscribe and click the bell notification. It, uh, you know, Pick the like and the bell notification that way, when we go live and we post studies, you will get the notification of that. And be sure to follow us on Facebook. So, Good thinking, Mr. John. Mr. Thomas, if you would, go ahead and take us into Acts chapter 3. Okay, we can do that. One of the things that we brought up in our last study in Acts chapter 2 is that the events in the last part of that chapter... Uh, were more of a summary of things developing throughout time. And now we start getting specific details. In this case, we have Peter and John entering into the temple uh, and uh, a miracle that takes place as recorded in the first 10 verses. And I want to go ahead and ask Brendan, if you will, to uh, read those 10 verses for us as we get started. <clears throat> no problem, Tom. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Uh, let me, let me catch in, up with you there. Hang on just a second. And thought I had my Bible program all set up for you there. And sorry, I'm a little bit slow. And okay, I'm hearing an echo from somebody. Um, if okay. Do y'all hear that? I do okay. not hear an echo today, John. I'm going to uh, turn my speaker down a little bit. It might be something on my end. I'll keep a, a check on it here as we go through. All right, Mr. Brendan, if you would, sir, go right ahead. Acts chapter 3, starting verse 1 through verse 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who became lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. 
But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And then uh, and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by his right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of, of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, thank you, Brendan, for reading that. Uh, uh, so as you can see here, we have the healing of a lame man. And, and as far as a chat room question for this particular section, uh, I, I want to ask, uh, and, and uh, uh, it says, it's kind of interesting, since they were now Christians, Peter and John, uh, why did they go to the temple? And so that will be our uh, chat room question that we will deal with in just a few moments. But getting back to the text here, um, in uh, verse number one, what details are given to us about the uh, lame man here? And and Paul, you want to answer that? or? Well, uh, he was lame, uh, and it had been a lifetime situation for him. From the time he was born uh, until that very day, uh, he was lame. Uh, what this involved was that he was not able to get to the temple to beg, uh, that he obviously was not able to uh, work to provide for himself because of this lameness. And even as a beggar, he was not able to get to a location that was in uh, a high traffic area uh, so that he could beg. Uh, but instead, he had to have folks lay him there. Uh, so he had to be carried in and carried away. Uh, he was totally dependent upon others for mobility. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And that's the observation. And and the one thing that uh, is worthy of kind of mentioning here is uh, is he was familiar, you know the fact that he did this every every day and that that factors into what happens in the next few verses. So people recognized him and every and those that came to the temple on a regular basis he was there, and they saw him. So so uh, uh, that's good call. Uh, Brian, uh, uh, another question that I would ask uh, on this is. Uh, as Peter, as he's asking for alms and he looks at Peter or Peter says to look at him, when he looks up, what does Peter offer the lame man? Well, it's interesting you asked that question. We, in fact, were chatting about this just earlier. Peter, of course, says silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. And then he restores his health. What we think is interesting about that is that the previous chapter was being very specific that the apostles, uh, that that a collection was taken up uh, by the the new church, by the Christians in that church, and it was being given to the apostles. So indeed, the apostles uh, actually had a significant amount of money collected. So the real question becomes, why is it they said they didn't have something to give him? And perhaps uh, the way I worded it is part of the answer that we might consider, is that the collection taken up for the treasury of the church isn't something that can be used for uh, benevolence to those who are outside of the church. This man wasn't a Christian. Um, we don't, uh, or I should say, we well, we, we, we should make that an inference that he's not a Christian. So that collection couldn't be shared with him. But they do have something that they can freely give, which is both the gospel of Christ and the miracles of the gospel of Christ. 
And so that is what they give him. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and that's definitely an interesting observation about uh, about the treasury and such. <coughs> Excuse me. Another observation that I make is that uh, uh, nowhere in Scripture do we find the giving of funds ever used for evangelism. Period. You know, it it was always for the relief of needy saints. So so. Uh, 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 Benevolence is not an evangelistic tool per se. Uh, e- even though people will observe good benevolence, even among individuals, it might give you opportunities. So, good point. Well, Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, Tom. Let me jump in real quick. I, I don't want to belabor this. Um, it's. I think it is a little bit of a stretch, though, to to assume that the reason why they didn't give him any funds is because. Um. Well, it it is as it says. I really think they just didn't have any money to give them. It had nothing to do with it coming from the treasury or not. Or them them personally, they had nothing to give him, but they could give him something better. Um, I don't know if I would look at this as. I think there are other plenty of verses verses to show the the funds within the local church are used to help the believers. Um, I don't know if I would use this one though as an argument against. Oh, hi, Paul. Um, <laughs> against that practice, but um, of taking the local funds and giving it to those who aren't believers. Right. That's yeah, that's uh, my opinion. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the best way to word this is that if they had given money to him, uh, it would be an example of of the, something being given to those who, uh, you know, who are outside the church. So that but, but absence it, fails to but, establish a, a contrary position. But it's just Peter and John, though. That's why I wonder about. Um, it, and they seem to be not working with the local, as far as um, the, well, how to put that. It, it seems to be very individualized and yeah. a very individual action, not a collective um, determination here on healing the fella. Right. And, and, and you could also add to that, even if, uh, even if they did have money, they gave them something better. So, so regardless of the circumstance, they said they didn't. Silver and gold have I none. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so they but they gave, they them, but they gave them something better. Yeah. So I'm, what I'm saying is, I don't think they had it and said we don't have it. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah. Think they but didn't I, have I was it. saying even if they had it, I'm saying okay. even if they did, I'm not saying they did, but suppose, gotcha. okay, suppose that they had it, they still gave them something that was better. But, but 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 that that's a good point. Something to definitely think about there. Any other thoughts on this verse? Okay, if not, uh, Michael, uh, 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 describe the describe the miracle that happens here. Well, at verse seven, they take him by the right hand, and there is some implication with that. Uh, extending the right hand was also recognized as a point of fellowship. We're giving this man the best that they could give him, and with with gladness. They take him by the right hand and lifted him up. Obviously, before that, he could not do this on his own. They, they lift him up immediately. His feet and ankle bones receive strength, and with that strength, the man leaps up, stands, walks, enters uh, with Peter and John into the temple. He's walking. He's leaping. But he doesn't praise Peter and John, praises God. And so obviously there is something here recognized even of much greater power than Peter and John. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And that's a great description. The, the the thing that really comes to my mind is, number one, it's it's immediate. And, and number two, it's a complete healing. You know, I, I mean, when you think about this as a, as a miracle, and you look at many of the examples, if you look at the underlying, you know, typically somebody has to learn to walk. Mm-hmm. It, does, it doesn't happen immediately. You know, a baby, a baby has to learn to walk. Well, here's somebody, he's never walked, according mm-hmm. to the text. But yet immediately he stands up and he is his he has strength in his ankles and he's not only able to walk, he's able to stand and he's able to leap mm. up and down. So 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 you ha- you have a, a lot more detail associated with this miracle or or a lot more uh yeah, a lot more detail as you look at everything that happens here. And that adds to the amazement, which is what we find with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, that leads to the next question: How did he respond? He praised God with this. Exactly, exactly. He 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 praised God, uh, and and we have all those things happening. Okay, uh, well, uh, how did the crowd respond on this occasion? And Sheldon, you want to take that, or? Sure. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a good point to say um, that you mentioned before that helps us to understand this that they knew this man. Uh, he he was not of somebody that they never seen before. Um, a lot of the times in the world today, among uh, some of our religious friends, uh, specifically, I have a friend whose dad is a Pentecostal uh, preacher, and and he claims to be able to to have the power of healing. Uh, however, usually when people are healed by him, it's not a member of the congregation. It's not somebody that the people really know. But it's uh, this man that is made lame or, or made deaf for not being able to walk. Uh, and then he heals this man. He gets up and he walks. But it's not somebody that was known to them every day. And I think that's what separates uh, this true miracle that we see in Acts 3 from what we see today. This is a man that was known by the people to, to have been lame. And so their reaction is off of that. They knew that it was the one that is sitting. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. At what had happened to him, uh, they they knew that he was this way, and it just absolutely amazed them that not only is this man healed, not only is he walking and, and given strength, but he's leaping around, he's praising God, he's active, he's excited. That that would have amazed every single person that would have been going to the temple uh, daily to pray. So, yeah, exactly, and 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 that's definitely a great point to make about that. Is is there was nothing fake about this? It was you know it was clearly uh, it was clearly a, a a miracle that could not be desired uh, denied. They they saw him, and uh, words that are used there's wonder and amazement uh, at what was happening. So good point there. Any any other thoughts on this entire section here? Okay, if not. Uh, hey, Tom. Uh, Tom, let me go ask him real quick. Uh, just, I was going to say, let's go back to the chat room question. Did anybody enter anything with that? Or, um, I find it interesting. Yes, we have we have one from Stephen James. I do find it interesting okay. about the the um, the normal practice of the Jewish people would have been to have gone to the temple three times a day: the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour. And I wonder if the Christians they probably continued that practice. 
of praying three hours a day, it, it would it would would be unreasonable to expect him to think, okay, we don't have to pray as much now that we're under the new covenant. You know, and so I wonder with with it doesn't say that Paul, Peter, and Jane, Peter and John was going to the temple to pray, but it says they were going during the third hour of the day, the hour of prayer. And I, I just I've often wondered about that if um, if the Christians continued that three times a day praying practice, which would not have been a bad thing. But sorry, that's just a little side thought. A couple things on that. I I think you're right. You know, there's a lot of practices underneath the Old Testament that the Jews did that in of themselves would not be in violation of the New Testament law, Mm -hmm. uh, such as the prayers. Um, uh, And, you know, the general rule of thumb is, you know, what we find, especially I would think Romans 14 on matters of that don't pertain, I don't, I haven't tried to word this. They don't affect one's salvation or matters of conscience, as Paul put it. So long as those are not, an individual is not binding those on our people, forcing their opinions on our people, the Christians have liberty to practice such things, again, provided that it doesn't violate Scripture. Are you trying Um, to avoid the phrase salvation issue? (laughs) I agree with you, though. And (laughs) worms. Open, uh, and then the other thing is too. Uh, I think it might be a both-and situation of why they're going to the temple. It may be that you know it's it's a habit they have this practice. But what other group of people in Jerusalem are going to be potential converts that are probably going to be quick studies than yep. devout Jews going to the temple who perhaps have not heard of what Christ did yet? So and, and the Christians continue to daily go to the temple, right? Yeah, I mean, so it's multiple and on an reasons. interesting side note, isn't it kind of strange that someplace through the years we've reduced that to Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and say that's enough. I, I've been on that horse for years. That the early church met together daily. Look at Hebrews ten twenty five, and as we see the day approaching, we need to do this more often. Uh, and yet, more and more and more people seem to go away from it. I'm even hearing a brother that are saying Sunday morning's enough, we'll meet in homes if we meet at all, and this kind of thing. We're going the wrong way. We need to get back to a daily practice of this. Tell me one scripture that says the daily prayer and three times a day is the Jews did. Tell me where that's going to hurt our souls. I'm I'm, I'm convinced we need to get back to that kind of a practice. If we're not already, yeah, there. yeah, we yeah, we, yeah, we shouldn't be, we sh- uh, we definitely shouldn't be reducing the time, you know, uh, you know. Uh, so I, I mean, I think that's a uh, that's a very good observation. You know, I one of the things that also came up to my my mind about this entire area here is is that that you bear in mind uh, what Jerusalem is. Uh, as as a matter of fact. I actually think that's kind of related to this chat question. So, uh, uh, does anybody else have any other observations before we get into that? Well, you you say you bring in the chat questions. Yeah. Okay. I just realized I wasn't thinking. I stepped all over that one. Okay. As far as the chat question, so we have one from Stephen James. He says it seems that it was three p.m. But I can't think of a reason why they would go to the temple. Perhaps they would still observe some of the old traditions. And then Gregor Hinckley, 
He says, seems like a good time to go to the temple to evangelize. But that is not stated either. Some habits are good from their previous life as Jews. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and th- those are good observations. Personally, what I, I think the reason they're going to the temple is it, it might have a little bit to do with heritage, but more than anything, it's to evangelize. Uh, uh, one of the things that comes to my mind about Jerusalem is <laughs> if you'll pardon the expression for Jews, Jewish was a tourist attraction. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, yes, they were required to go there on a regular basis, but if for some reason you were not able to get to Jerusalem for the feasts, people would still be coming and going all year long. There would be this desire to go to Jerusalem. And, and so there was, con- my point is, is there's constantly a new audience. And uh, they need to hear the truth. And that's where you're going to go and you're going to find people and have the opportunity to teach them. And you also have the daily interaction, like what Michael brought up. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes repetition strengthens things. When we see them in the temple, though, it's typically associated with teaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in this place. Hey, any Tom, other thoughts? Tom, do you think that uh, the early Jewish converts continued to celebrate those religious uh, Jewish holidays? Yes and no. Uh, and, and and what I mean by that is uh, I think some of them observed some of them they may have observed them with a different perspective they observed them as a part of their heritage as a part of their tradition knowing that Jesus was a Jew and the fulfillment of the law but they needed to do so with the understanding of what had already been fulfilled and perhaps there were parts of it that they no longer did that I, I would go to Romans 14, where, which I think is directly dealing with that as an example, as well as other other things. Maybe, maybe Tom, one other thing to consider, too. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, we're told that this location, Solomon's porch, two places it's mentioned, is also the meeting place of the church, uh, that uh, this is the place where they come together as one accord, which makes sense. It's probably the largest public place where a group, a large group of people, and if we assume it's one congregation in Jerusalem, and it may not have been, it may have been multiple congregations, but if we assume it's one congregation in Jerusalem, probably it's about the only place they could meet. So it's very possible that, that Solomon's porch is the meeting location of the Church of Christ in Jerusalem, too. So uh, that might also be what brings them there. Um, a second thought was Acts chapter 21, in about 25 years from now, we're going we're gonna to run into them still observing traditions that are even more peculiar than the ones we've discussed. So, uh, you know, while we're kind of talking about it abstractly here, when we get to Acts chapter 21, we're going to have to deal with the vow and the paying of the vow in the temple uh, that Christians were doing, too. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, Tom, uh, when I'm, I think Brian's comments are outstanding, but when I was making that, I was not suggesting that it would have been okay for them to bind their Jewish tradition. Uh, but that there were, it seems to me, just from looking at this and some of the things Brian mentioned, that there were some who continued, if it was the time of the Passover, they would remember, hey, remember what God did for our people back, uh, when, uh, he rescued us out of Egypt? And, and there doesn't, uh, doesn't, there wasn't part of their church worship. wasn't part of that. It was a, yeah. uh, like you said, Romans fourteen talks about observing a day, 
And so, um, you know, I, I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but there seems to be more to it than just, hey, there's a lot of people there. Let's go. Uh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, And, and uh, you know what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts and also in many of the letters that Paul writes where he explains that the old law has been done away with, you've got these Judaizing teachers. And, and, and you know, one of the things, I don't know if we think about this, but those Judaizing teachers very likely believed in Jesus, or at least many of them did. And they were saying, you know, we're ready, we're willing to accept the Gentiles into the faith with Christ, provided they follow parts of the old law. So there were some not wanting to let go of parts of the old law. And, uh, and that would have to be taught away. So, but, but those are good points. Uh, anything else before we move on to the sermon? Because, uh, because of time. So. All right, well, okay, with that in mind, let's go on and we find the sermon that is actually preached on this particular occasion, and it actually covers the rest of the chapter, verses 11 through 26. So I'm going to go ahead and just break up the reading because of the length. And and, and Sheldon, I'm going to ask if you could, would you read through verse 18, 11 through 18, yeah. and then Michael, can you finish up with uh, verses 19 through the end of the chapter? Yes, I am in the, the New King James Version, beginning in verse 11. It says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though... By our own power or godliness, we have made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you, uh, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. You want me to finish that now, Tom, or wait for yeah, it? Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead, since okay. it's all one time. And I'll read from the King James. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, 
and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus Christ, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. All right. Okay. Uh, thank you all for reading that. So here, <coughs> excuse me. So here we have the sermon of of, uh, of Peter. And one of the things to bear in mind with sermons in Scripture, we probably have what we would call the Reader's Digest condensed version. Only it's an inspired condensation. So, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we we have this particular sermon that takes place. This miracle has happened, and it's going to be used as an opportunity to teach. So uh, the thought question that I have for the audience, and this is basically going to verse 16, is what is the faith in the name of Jesus that is mentioned in verse number 16? So when it talks about faith in his name, what is that faith? We will deal with that when we, uh, when we get to the end of this. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with this. Uh, John, uh, how did Peter respond when the people ran together? Well, Tom, he began to address the true cause of the miracle um, by explaining to them that it wasn't <coughs> Peter and John that brought this event about, but it was actually Jesus or the authority, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the name of Jesus there. Um, and he, he's asking them, why are you marveling at this? You know, so what is, you know, why are you so surprised at what you see? And then he continues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, <laughs> you know, when you ask that, why would you be surprised? What was that kind of an implication of? Uh, well, well, with everything that had happened, you yeah. know, think about from the day of Pentecost and all the miracles that the apostles were doing. We, we only have a, a few recorded. Acts chapter 2 towards the end talks about the many signs that they were doing. There were a lot of things going on at this point in time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and if you really want to take it back, uh, go over the last three years and the things that have happened all around. That's true. You know, G the yeah. miracles in the life of Jesus and so on, and and uh, and the apostles. So, so, so that's the point. You know, you know, why are you surprised that we are doing these things? And and I like it interesting. Uh, why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power we've made this man walk? And and, and of course that that leads to the next question, which is uh. Uh, uh, to whom did Peter give the credit for this healing? And Paul, you want to answer that for me? I just stepped back into here, uh, but uh, the healing certainly was attributed to, uh, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he was to stand up and walk. Uh, I think the translation that uh, was read by uh, one of the brothers said uh, the Nazarene, and so it, it was to uh, God through Christ that that was attributed yeah yeah exactly matter of fact you get to verse number 16 uh where he's actually summarizing all of this he makes the point that it was through faith in his name uh uh that uh he has made this man strong whom you see and know so he he, he attributes it to jesus as as the one and, and also god the father because he mentions god in verse number 13 which kind of leads to that question or my my third question and uh, 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 Brian, uh, how does Peter identify God in this text here? 
Uh, specifically in verse 13, he identifies him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's kind of neat because whenever God uh, introduces himself to Moses, that's the precisely same um, identification that he gives him there, too. So that's interesting. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he identifies him with... Uh, with with God the Father and and I actually I skipped over Michael as far as dealing with the question as well so I want to give Michael if you can could you answer question number four which is dealing with these verses thirteen through fifteen he's identified this is the God that goes all the way back to Abraham what events associated with the death of Jesus are mentioned by Peter in this text he kind of outlined what happened. I'll just start at verse 13 and, and read down through here and, and yep. show them to you. Yep. These same Jews had glorified Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had glorified Jesus Christ. But these people had taken Jesus Christ and delivered him up, denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate knew that he was innocent. But these same people, verse 14, denied the Holy One and the just, both, both attributes given to Jesus, the Holy One and the just, and instead desired that a murderer, uh, uh, Barabbas, be given unto them. He was also a thief and an insurrectionist. They killed the Prince of Life. Now, there's the third name give, given to Jesus, the Holy One, the just, the Prince of Life, whom God raised up from the dead. Now, there's the kicker. God yep. hadn't raised anybody else from the dead. They could go over to David's tomb, as Peter said in Acts chapter 2. David's bones would still be there. They go to the tomb of Christ. God had raised him from the dead. And the fact, we are all witnesses. Not only the 12 apostles, but you remember we discussed last week the fact that there were above 500 brethren at one time that saw him. So now at verse 15, you've got the evidence this isn't done through Peter and John. This is done through the power of God. If he had the power to raise his only begotten son from the dead, he surely had the power to heal this lame man. Give him yeah. Yeah, yeah, amen. And, that, and, and that's a great summary. And, of course, the whole point is he just kind of goes through everything that was associated with Jesus dying and so on. And, and I'm glad you emphasized resurrection because, uh, you know, in my recent studies and preparing for some classes I'm going to be teaching, I've been emphasizing the importance of the resurrection. And, and you see it mentioned twice in this text. It's mentioned in the last verse as well. And, 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 and the resurrection always becomes the point of controversy. You know, when, when no, we go through the book um, of Acts, you know, I, I want you to notice how many times as we go through the book of Acts, that the resurrection is brought up. And it's at the point of the resurrection that there's some type of a reaction, either good or bad as a result of You're that. You're exactly right. And there's yeah. a great distinction between the resurrection, which is limited to Jesus, and being raised from the dead. I've noticed several commentators a lot of times will talk about the resurrection of Lazarus, the resurrection of the son of the widow of Nain, the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, the resurrection of Eutychus, et cetera, et cetera. None of those were resurrected or they'd still be alive. Yeah. That resurrection is limited to Jesus. John chapter 11, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, makes it distinctive because this is the only time that God raised a body from the dead without the agency of mankind to do it. He yeah. did it by himself. 
And, and that's a good point. And as we always emphasize, uh, raised never to die again, which is the idea of the resurrection when we think about that. So, so uh, great point there. Does anybody else have any thoughts on this? Any other observations? Okay, well, well if not, uh, we'll just keep moving on through the text. And uh, uh, after all this, in verse number 17... Uh, it's kind of interesting, and, and and verse number sixteen is is an important verse where his name through faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. Uh, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It, uh, faith was associated with his healing, and we're going to deal with that when we get to the uh, to the chat room question. So, I'm I'm kind of passing over it, but not really. We're going to emphasize it. And, and and so that leads us to uh, verse number 17. And in Brendan, uh, uh, Peter here notes that what they did to Jesus was in ignorance. You did this ignorantly, he says. Were the people at fault for the crucifixion of Jesus? I'm going to go and say yes. Ignorance does not mean non uh, innocent. Uh, for example, if I go back to Oregon and I somehow forget all the laws about driving up there and I pull a U-turn uh, and I get pulled over. It doesn't mean just because I was ignorant of U-turns being legal in Oregon somehow gets me off the hook from breaking that law and getting the ticket. I still broke the law, whether I, the law exists independently of my knowledge. Uh, so just, so putting myself in these people's shoes, if I cast my vote, even though I had no idea who this Jesus fellow was, I'm still guilty of putting him to death. Uh, and I still have to resolve that guilt. And we're going to see that in the next two verses, what they have to do. But it, it's the same answer. It's the same situation in Acts chapter 2 that we talked about. These people were guilty in Acts 2 of putting Jesus to death. They had to remove that guilt somehow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ignorance is never an excuse. I, I like the fact that you use Oregon as an example, though. You know, like, like for example, you go up to Oregon and you try to put gas in your own car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I moved down here, I joked that Arizona is the big boy state. You can pump your own gas and you can talk on your cell phone when you drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Except yeah, you can't, exactly. you can't talk on no. the cell phone anymore. So, <laughs> you know, another another good point though, um, Tom, that I think drives that point home is uh, Jesus when he was on the cross, asked the Father to forgive them, for they know not what they do. He recognized that it was in ignorance, uh, but there was still a forgiveness that would need to happen uh, for them, for them to be removed of, of that. So, um, you know, there there is still that fault, even though I, I agree with Brendan. I'm not trying to step on his question at all. But, uh, but, you know, that's just another point that drives that home, that this ignorance on their part was not necessarily something that, that made them non-guilty. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, also, don't forget to consider that a part of the ignorance that we're dealing with here is they were carrying out God's plan, whether they knew it or not. Right. So, I mean, you know, that, that's another matter of fact, we get into our next speech, I think, over in the next couple of chapters. That kind of goes into more detail about that. So you've got the idea of the ignorance. You didn't realize everything that you were doing, but you're still guilty. You know, uh, you know, you're you're guilty because you participated in a sinful behavior, and that's what you have to deal with. 
So, so that takes place. Good. Any other thoughts through verse number seventeen? Okay. If 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 uh, if not, uh, next we come to uh, uh, question number six here, and we ask this question: uh, uh, Were the things that happened to Jesus actually a surprise? And and John, can I get you to answer that? In in what way, Tom? Are you talking about? A well, surprise uh, to whom? Uh, okay, okay. Well, well. When you look at the context here, he says those things which God foretold. In, in other words, you know, and that's kind of the point. And again, this is it. And this is another one of those yes and no questions. <laughs> yeah. No, I I understand what you're at. you're from the. This was not yeah, a surprise. Not a this was God's intention from the very beginning. Um. We see that in Acts chapter 2, uh, by his determined uh, foreknowledge and so forth, he brought these things about. Um, so, no, it, it was it was not a surprise. Maybe maybe the Jews and so forth, made, they knew not what to ex- expect, and the apostles did not know what to expect either. But no, it wasn't a surprise. This was God's plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's really the point to consider in that. Uh, and Peter goes into great detail about that in much, in much of the, uh, the the next few verses here, where he gives some examples that are associated with that from that standpoint. And so, uh, you know, so that kind of leads us to verse number nineteen. After he says this, uh, you know, uh, 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 this was fulfilled according to what the prophet said was going to happen. And in verse number nineteen. What do Peter and John tell the people that they need to do? And Paul, you want to answer this for us? And uh, which question were we on? Uh, we are on question number seven, dealing with uh, dealing Verse with repentance. Uh, yes. So uh, our question that we'd like to address is uh, question number seven, actually verse 19, excuse me. <clears throat> what do Peter and John tell the people they need to do? What is meant by repent and be converted uh, in the New King James Version? And I did not note the difference in the New American Standard. Someone may want to bring that up. But I find I do find uh, chapter 3 and verse 19 to be a very interesting passage. <clears throat> because when the gospel is preached in Acts 2 and uh, verse 38, they're told to repent. But they're told to repent and be baptized. And here is, is another uh, way of stating what they needed to do. And that was repent and be converted. It's, it's interesting for me to note that often uh, the different things that are needed to take place uh, in the process of coming to Christ are not always stated just in one place. And certainly there were other teachings that were surrounding this. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized uh, in Mark 16. Uh, Acts 2, 38, 2 and verse 38 says, repent and be baptized. Here he talks about <clears throat> being converted. Uh, converted to Christ. Uh, certainly not converted to a denomination, not converted to the Church of Christ, but converted to Christ uh, was the point that needed to be made. Yeah, and 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 that's exactly right, uh, Brendan. <clears throat> what does the New American Standard use say? What verse now? Uh, verse nineteen. I was looking up other scriptures. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. No worries. Uh, verse nineteen reads as such. Therefore, repent and turn, so you uh, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
Yeah, exactly. So you've got, instead of the word be converted as the King James, New King James, you've got the word turn, and the ESV says to turn back. So, so you know, this is this is a, ver, a word. This word "converted" is a word that's associated with change, you know, changing. And when you think about, if you, if you look at the the Greek word of of that of that word "converted" in the New King James, I think the the New American Standard uh, and even the ESV hits it more accurately. It is a turning, uh, yeah. a turning away from, a turning back to, uh, to to go again. So, uh, you know. It might confuse some people in the New King James to read that, but it is the Greek word is to turn. So, yeah, exactly, and and the idea of that turning back isn't that associated with one obeys the God when one becomes baptized in the act of baptism. They're they're what are they doing? You know, they're they're changing. They're they're putting to death the man of sin and uh, raised to walk in newness of life. Another observation that I found as I was doing this is. Is that this is actually a, uh, it, it's something that you do. You know, as I understand in the wording, it's not something that God does to you, but the wording is an active, it's an active word, meaning that it's us taking the action as opposed to God, quote unquote, converting us. You know, some in the religious world, you want to say that. You're, it's a direct operation of the Spirit is, is the way you're saved. That's not what this verse is saying. It's saying these are the things you need to do. You need to repent, and you need to be converted. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, so uh, so that's what I have on that one. Uh, next, in verse, uh, verse number 21, Brian, uh, what do you think is meant by it saying that Jesus... Uh, was received into heaven until the time of the restoration of all things? That's a great question, Tom. Uh, we actually saw that expression back in Acts chapter 1, whenever the apostles were talking to Jesus before he ascended, and they asked him about that. Is this the time of the restoring? And the, However, the, the way they applied it was the restoring of the kingdom to Israel. Um, so it so it kind of relates in our mind this idea. But what's really neat, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, um, and I very seldom go into the Greek, but it is interesting to note that the terminology used throughout this chapter tends to be some of the most medical terminology used by Luke, and we oftentimes consider Luke as a physician. Um, we see the expression back in chapter 16 that this man is given perfect health. Uh, that's pretty obvious to us. But what's interesting is that whenever he talks about this idea of refreshing, the time of refreshing that comes, and then restoration, those are all medical uh, ideas. In other words, the refreshing is uh, sometimes it could be considered a revitalization, a, a breathing life back into something. And then this is a total renewing of life is the terminology. Kind of neat because what I see is, Peter's kind of talking, he points to the man, and he says, look at this man, he has a restoration of his health. That's good. If you repent and be converted, you can have a, a refreshing of your life or, or born again. That's great. And he says, one day Jesus is going to come, and he's going to ultimately restore all things back to the Father, and that's perfect. So I kind of see that as he builds on this language in the case uh, from the restoring of somebody's physical health, to a restoring of spiritual health, to a restoring of our lives to the Father, it really seems like a neat case of, of one thing being built on another. So I, I think it's kind of a neat terminology that's used there. 
Yeah, and 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 that that's a great point. I mean, I I mean, uh, you know, I I sometimes in classes when I ask loaded questions, I always I always include the answer C, all of the above. You know, so so I, I mean, so and, and and that's a great point. When you look at this, it's dealing with it's dealing with a lot of things. It's dealing with what's going to happen in their lives, and, and it's it's also looking forward to whatever is going to happen in the future. Uh, one commentary I came across talked about the completion of all the things that the prophets said, you know, the fulfillment of all their prophecies. And, and, and also just, just about any time, even though there may be exceptions, anytime I see the idea of a, of, of, a, uh, coming from the presence of the Lord, you know, I, I think as, until the world is done, you know, from that standpoint. So, so there's a lot of things associated with that. Uh, good observation. Any other questions anybody has, or or thoughts on this? Okay, if not, now we actually get into some of the uh, prophecies that are mentioned here, and uh, the first one is uh, uh, we we find in verse number twenty-two, and and in that verse. Uh, uh, Michael, where is that found in the Old Testament? That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 17, actually, in answer to the full question that you've got here. Where Moses speaks and said, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall you hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembling, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see the great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. In other words, they knew that if they failed to listen to what Moses is repeating of what God said, they would die. They didn't want to hear the voice of God himself because it was a thunderous voice. It frightened them. They'd rather Moses heard it and relate that to them. Now, when you pull that prophecy into the New Testament here at verses 22 and 23 and also verse 24, it's the same thing. This is the prophet that that Moses spoke of that would be raised up. They should listen to him in all things because it shall come to pass, verse 23, that every soul which will not hear that prophet, that is, will not listen to Christ, shall be destroyed from among the people. They can't have the joys that others that have been saved from their past sins in- yeah, uh, uh, very good, and 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 that's exactly right. Uh, people were very familiar with that verse, and, and they were uh, looking for a prophet. And obviously, what you know, among other things, you know, when you see statements like this, Peter is is while he's teaching fulfillment, he's also provoking. You know, mm-hmm. if, if 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 there were religious leaders around that were listening to this. They had a different concept of who the prophet is. And, well, and, they, they were looking for a king to yeah. come over a physical kingdom, and that king would also be their prophet. That's not at all what the Lord had planned. He <laughs> was also the Savior. Uh, Moses is declared to be the deliverer of Israel. Jesus is the deliverer of all mankind from their sins. So this is the prophet they need to hear. If they'll not listen to him, then they can't be saved from their past sins. And uh, to go on with with your question here, twenty verse twenty five mentions a uh, uh, or verse twenty four rather talks about the prophet Samuel. 
Well, I'm, I'm a little bit, as we discussed before the program, I'm a little bit like, uh, like Brian with this. I'm convinced that Samuel was a rather unique prophet unto himself. And he leads the prophecies about Jesus and how that that's the messenger, that's the Messiah that is to come. So beginning really with Samuel complete through the rest of the prophets of the Old Testament, we have this promise. The Jews knew that promise. Open your eyes. This is the fulfilled promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, certainly that's a great observation there. Brian, did you, did you want to add anything to that as far as? No, I, th- I think Mike said it well. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear the expression that Samuel is the first of the Masonic prophets. Masonic probably is referring to the literal term Messiah, which means the anointed one. Samuel is the first of the prophets to go out to anoint kings. He anoints Saul, then he anoints David. But but he also seems to be the first of the prophets that kind of uh, uh, operate from then until the end of the kings as one of the three rulers or one of the three men of authority in Israel, that we always see there were prophets, uh, a king, and a high priest. And those things foreshadow the work of Christ. All three of those offices, by the way, are anointed offices. That's what's kind of interesting. Uh, that uh, and, and Jesus is the great prophet, in, you know, likened unto Moses, as we just read. He's the great king, likened unto David. He's the great high priest, likened unto Melchizedek. Um, and all of these were foreshadows, precursors to what Christ would be. So I think the, the reference to Samuel is a reference to the concept of, of what a Messiah was. It's probably a lot deeper than just passing the you know statement as, as Peter says it. But it's really interesting that Peter's trying to say, look, this is something we've known about for a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you and Michael make good points about that dealing with Samuel and so on. And of course... Uh, the whole, the whole point is, is there were multitudes of prophecies that could be brought out, uh, about who, about Jesus. Some of them very, very specifically. They were looking for their Messiah and, and Jesus fulfilled those things. That's the ultimate point that you have taking place in this. And, and, uh, I, uh, and I go back to just the verse 23. I find it interesting that in that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18, the one verse that Peter quotes in there is the one that says that those who reject him are going to be destroyed. So, so I mean, so, uh, so you know, I think he's pointing, uh, he's, he's uh, pointing an indictment at many who were still rejecting Jesus after all the things that had happened. And then in verse 25, and I know we're about to, we're running out of time, so we're going to wrap this up. Only got a couple of verses left. But he, he mentions one final thing, and this actually goes, it predates Samuel and predates that as a prophet. He goes all the way back to Abraham, and he quotes from what verse? Anybody? Genesis twenty-two eighteen. Yeah, or yeah, uh, Genesis twenty-two eighteen, and also in Genesis 12 and verse 3. So, you know, where this promise is made to Abraham, and it's repeated over and over. Genesis 22 is after he offers up Isaac. And in Genesis 12 is when he just makes the ultimate promise to him. Uh, all families are going to be blessed as a result of, of uh, this prophet who, uh, uh, who is to come. And in this, uh, Peter's establishing that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. So he qualifies. So he just gives a handful of prophecies here. And I read in one commentary, it's very likely uh, 
that there was a whole bunch more prophecies that he made on this occasion. But we have the we have summarized what we need to know. And that leads us to verse number 26, which is the conclusion here. And what is Peter's conclusion? And, and Brandon, Brendan, do you want to answer that? Or do you have thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, my thoughts are short to the point. Uh, if one wants to be blessed in life, you need to convert. Peter uh, makes that tie there, that blessing there. He is blessing you. He sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Um, and then I have written down here, I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. We look at everything that Christ did for us. He took on the form of, of, of human flesh. Uh, he was temporary uh, Lord as far as the order of creation. He never gave his deity. He experienced the pains and, and the realities of taking uh, on this human body. Uh, he humbled himself that he might exalt us at the proper time. And that's why I think Peter talks about, therefore for us, humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us at the proper time. Uh, if one wants to be blessed in less life, one needs to convert and submit their life to Christ. Yeah. Uh, good point. Any other thoughts on that? So here we have the conclusion of the lesson, at least as recorded here. Uh, okay, so that wraps up the chapter. Just a couple of things to deal with. Are there any responses to our uh, to the chat room question? And uh, uh, any thoughts there, John? Or are none they there? On you, none on YouTube, and none that I saw coming across on Facebook as well. Okay. Well, if that's the case, what is the faith in the name of Jesus that's mentioned in verse sixteen? Does anybody here have thoughts on that? Well, yes. Go ahead. Oh, I can tell them to you. Okay. Well, what we're looking at here in this case in point is it is won by the authority of the name of Christ. But also, it's the faith on the part of the Apostle Peter. And there might be a possibility he's referring to the faith of the one that asked. I'm still up in the air on that. Um, we did yeah. some studying on that, and it's a possibility, but I think it's more the faith on the part of Peter, but because he talks about faith in his name, but it has to do specifically with the authority that comes with being Jesus of Nazareth, the authority that God gave him. Yeah, it, it, and great point. Miracles were not going to happen without Jesus uh, or without God. Uh, they just don't happen. And And we've noted on other occasions that, in miracles, the faith primarily rested in the one that was performing the miracle because miracles were a sign, you know, designed to confirm the messenger that he was teaching the truth. And, and so they were designed to convert. So not all miracles were the result of the healee or the one receiving the miracle having faith. Sometimes it produced faith. And and I think that that's the point that Peter's making here. And so that that's a great summary. Anybody else have anything on that? Okay, well, if not, I guess that kind of wraps up the class, uh, uh, or, or the class, uh, this particular chapter study. Uh, there are many uh, factoring points that we could add to this, uh, but I think our time is up for now. So, uh, John, I'm going to turn it back to you, and you can wrap it up. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. I appreciate the job you did today in leading the discussion. 
I think Mike Davis is down to uh, lead us next week in Acts chapter 4. So be sure to look ahead to that, Acts chapter 4, and we'll consider that then. We'd like to thank you so much for taking time to join us for our study today. It's been wonderful to have you here. Please, as we mentioned a while ago, be our friend and subscribe to YouTube, to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, and <clears throat> that way you can join us each week for our studies. And if you miss something that may be, uh, if you miss a study live, you can go back and catch it um, in the recorded format on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining us, and Lord willing, we'll continue again next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. That's noon in the Eastern Time Zone. 9 a.m. Pacific Time. And 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And if you are a believing scientist studying on the island of Madagascar, that will be 8 a.m. for you. That's right here at live.truthfactor.com. Have a wonderful week.